I'm especially grateful for the music this morning. Um, also mindful of Brother Tom. Uh, just keep him and his mother in your prayers um, and the McGee family in general. It's good to see Mason here. Um, we actually haven't met, so it's good to meet you <laughs> from afar. Uh, let's pray together and then we'll uh, we'll get into the word together. Father, thank you again for this morning. Um, I pray that as we look at your word that we could, if possible, by your spirit, set aside distractions. Uh, whatever is troubling our hearts, uh, that we would actually come to you with that and lay it down so that we can see what your word has for us. Ask that you would increase our appetites for the word and that we would come ready to feed on your word as your sheep. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Hebrews 1, of course. And I'll read the first four verses as been, has been our custom uh, these weeks. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So what we've seen so far, especially last week, is the surprising nature or uh, the unexpected nature of the incarnation. The Jewish people anticipated a Messiah to come. We were talking about this some in our Sunday school class that he wasn't exactly what was anticipated. They were expecting a military king, someone who would rule in a physical sense in the form of his father David and put an end to Roman occupation. Yet he came as a baby, born to an obscure family, in an obscure place, in an obscure time. And so, at the same time, Jesus, we talked about this last week, uh, there was nothing that you would have seen just with your physical eyes that would have given you insight into the true nature of this person. Isaiah says he had no form or majesty that we should look on him. The rulers of this age, Paul says, they didn't even understand what God was doing in Christ or else they wouldn't have killed him. Right? It wasn't immediately acknowledgeable or obvious that this, in fact, is the Son of God. It takes the eyes of faith to understand what is happening in the person of Jesus Christ. And we talked at length about that in these two phrases. He is the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So just ponder that this Christmas. That the one who came... In a feeding trough, right? We have, we have a nice word. We call it a manger. It's a feeding trough. In a cave that was used to store animals, that one is the one who is the exact imprint, the nature of God, 
and the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. That takes the eyes of faith. You can't, you can't just look at Jesus and see that, right? He didn't have an aura shining around him as, as a lot of the paintings depict, right? He was common to the natural eye. And now we come to this phrase. And it's almost as if the author of Hebrews is tipping his hand to what he's going to spend the majority of the book talking about. And that is primarily his high priestly role. That Jesus is the administer and the high priest and the sacrifice of a greater and better covenant. And he says, after making purification for sins. We'll spend the majority of our time on this phrase. And we'll, we'll try to finish out verse 4 this morning as well. But I just have four questions on this passage that we'll walk through one by one. The first question is, why does the author use this word purification? That question might not make sense right now, but I'll explain it here in a little bit. The second question is, what does he mean by purification? What, what is he trying to get across with this word? Third, how does Jesus make purification for sins? Because it's not... It's not explicit yet in the text. And then fourth, what does that mean for us, especially today? So the first question, why use this word purification? After making purification for sins. The word could also be translated cleansing, and it's used in other contexts to refer to the ceremonial or everyday washings of the Old Testament. Do you remember the first miracle of Jesus at the wedding in Cana? Those stone jars were used for the Jewish rite of purification. That's the same word there. So the Jews understood this everyday ritualistic practice of purification whereby you have to make yourself clean in order to come into the presence of God. That's, that's the word the author uses here. It's also used uh, based on the grammar to refer to baptism. So some, some symbol of purification and baptism. It's also used to refer to the cleansing needed after childbirth under the Old Covenant and after you recovered, if you did, from leprosy. It's the same word, purification. But it's only used one other time in Second Peter to refer explicitly to the work of Jesus. So it's not one of the common analogies of the work of Christ. Right? We're, hopefully you're used to many of the Bible's other words to use to refer to the work of Jesus. Right? He redeemed us. He uh, was the atonement for our sins. He was the propitiation before God. He ransomed us. He canceled out the record of debt of our sins. He brought us to God. He is the sacrifice. He's the liberation. He is the victory. And so we have this word, it's somewhat unique or rare in terms of the work of Christ, purification. What we'll find in our study over, over the time we spend in this book is that the author of Hebrews often has just a slightly different view of things, just a slightly different perspe perspective whereby we see more fully what the nature of the gospel really is. It's not that the truth changes from book to book. It's that each author, led by the Spirit, filled by the Spirit, 
pushed along by the Spirit, is writing to cover just a slightly different aspect. And that's so much the case with the author of Hebrews. Just a different facet of the truth. So, as I said earlier, much of the book of Hebrews deals with the idea of Jesus being our new, our better, and our eternal high priest. He's the minister of a better covenant. He is the one who in himself makes purification or cleansing for our sins as our high priest. So the the Greek could even be read that way. After by himself or in himself making purification for sins. It's not that he came and he cleaned something and then left. It's that in himself, the author, you can see the author's already tipping his hand to what he means. In himself, he made purification for sins. So we understand that, hopefully we understand that Jesus had to be the one through whom God forgave our sins because his death is is the only death that could have dealt with our sins. And hopefully we understand that Jesus is the one who reconciles us to God because only Jesus' life is righteous enough to fill that requirement. And I could go through the other analogies of words the Bible uses to describe the work of Jesus. But we need to have an understanding or an appreciation, a deep gut-felt feeling of the filth of our sins. I know that isn't pretty. It's kind of uncouth to bring up on the Sunday before Christmas. But I hope you can see, even in the Christmas story, it's intentionally pictured this way. It's a feeding trough in a cave that doubled as a barn. And it probably wasn't winter, it was probably autumn, so it was kind of warm and musty. It's not a pretty picture, right? You you see these live nativities out there, I guarantee you they don't go all the way. And it's important to have this idea of filth because villains, even in literature and fiction, they have some redeeming qualities about them, right? And I'm sorry, I I allow myself a couple, one nerd reference a day, I'll put them all into one here, but like, you know, Darth Vader, to a degree, is really cool, right? He's powerful, he's got this laser sword, Thanos, the most recent big box office movie, he's like... We can understand his thinking, right? Oh, he's trying to do something that he sees as good. But the Bible presents a deeper, what should be a more gut-felt feeling of the wrongness of our sins than just that we're these evil people in that kind of clean, sterilized sense of evil. Our sins are filthy. Dirty, unacceptable, unclean. So what, what does he mean? So we've kind of got this idea, okay, purification deals with making something clean that was previously dirty. What does he mean by his act of purification? How, how can I bring words together to kind of shed light on what he's getting across here? And I struggled long and hard to think of a good illustration that would be fitting to communicate the filth and the dirtiness of our sin before the Lord. 
And I thought of a few, and I thought that that would just be wrong to bring up in a church service. And it shows that we really feel and we understand the problem with filth. Because if I were to go through and give an illustration that would be appropriate to the level of disgusting nature of our sins before God, it would cause some uncomfortable shifts in this room. And I might get some angry emails. How could you bring that up in a church service? So we feel it. We understand that filth is a problem and that it's not, it's not appropriate to bring up in certain contexts, but that, that's how we should feel about our sins, and that's how God sees our sin. It's filth. Even the Bible itself, like I, I thought, well, there's, there's some passages in the Bible I could go to to talk about how God sees our sin in this filthy context. Not just, you know, the evil, the rebellion, you know, all those other analogies we have of sin, but the filth. And, and I don't even know if I could do that. You go to Isaiah 65, I'll just read it, I won't explain it. You can look it up in your own time. If you have a good study Bible, it'll explain what these words mean, most likely. We have all become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. That phrase, polluted garment, is a really disgusting idea. And I could go to Ezekiel 16 and 23. I I won't even read those right now. One, we don't have time. Two, a lot of uncomfortable shifts, right? God, through the prophets, continually tries to communicate in very harsh language how terribly filthy our sins are before him. And we often don't feel that. We picture the redemption of Christ or his coming as, oh, we're, we're the lost ones or we're, we're the ones who need redeeming. We're, we're under the dominion of Satan and darkness and Jesus comes as our victor, our liberator and takes us to God. And all that's very true. But it's not as if we were guiltless. We are not clean. We are not befitting of redemption. So the one story I will use is the story of the prodigal son. This is one that hopefully you're all familiar with and it won't offend anyone for me to just talk bluntly about what is being communicated in that story. So you know, hopefully you know it. Uh, You have a father, rich dad, and he has two sons. One's a workaholic, really type A, and he has another son who's type B and, and he just really wants his side of the possession so that he can go and live the life he wants to live, right? So he comes to his dad and he basically says, if you read between the lines, hey, I kind of wish you were dead already. You've lived too long, so why don't you just give me my inheritance now and I can go live the way I want, right? And the father obliges. And the son sells all that he got in the inheritance, so he sold it at a discount mostly. So he's got this, this massive thing of wealth, you know, camels, donkeys, all this stuff, and he just sells it really quickly so he can get it into money. And he goes off and he spends it the way any kind of sinner would. And he spends it all, probably racks up a ton of debt. And then he finds himself hungry and needing work. And the story goes to the point, like the lowest point of the story, 
is when he is given work by a Gentile, someone considered unclean, someone who doesn't know God, someone who has not been covered or cleansed of his sins, and the son works for him feeding the pigs, an unclean animal, and he's eating out of the trough that the pigs are fed from. If you've ever raised animals, you know that they don't keep their feet out of the troughs. And this imagery is what Jesus uses to communicate. This is what rebellion against God looks like. And obviously the the parable is told for another reason, right? He's speaking it to the Pharisees, and they're the older brother in that story, and we don't have time to go through that. But this image, this, this singular point in the narrative is what Jesus does to shock our sensibilities to understand how filthy our sins are before him. We are dirty. It's not just that our sins are dirty. We are dirty because of our sin, and we need cleansing. And it could be argued, because of many passages, especially uh, Romans 8, Genesis 3, that physical filth and disease and decay is meant to show us the disgusting nature of our sin before God. It's an illustration, as you were, if you will, if as it were. Sorry. Decay, disease, and all of this. This is under the curse of God to show us this is what sin does. This is how bad it is. This is how you should feel about it. God is perfect in holiness and purity. And the Old Covenant especially shows us the need for purification. You couldn't even touch some things and then go to the place of worship that evening, right? You have to be unclean till evening, even if you did all the purifications. And then the next day, you can come before the Lord, right? If you, if you just muscle through reading the Torah, especially places like Leviticus, you get the idea God is trying to make it clear to the people of Israel, who are under his covenant, that being clean before the Lord is a big deal. That he doesn't accept or tolerate filth, especially of the moral category. All this serves to show our great need for purification. And note note this, Look look at what's going on and how he structures this sentence. After making purification for sins. Who is the agent in that sentence? The him, right? He was talking about Jesus after he made purification. He's the one who cleans us. And one true life example that will show you just kind of as a side note how it's important that we get straight in our minds that we don't clean ourselves. Most of us have had or have children The process of potty training is a very painful one. And when they decide they're old enough or bright enough to clean themselves, they just make it worse. And I know that's a little uncouth. It's a little gross on the Sunday before Christmas, but that, that is what our, that's a picture of what it's like to try and pretty ourselves up or, or to take on ourselves the task of purification. This is why He made purification. For sin. So now, hopefully, we see our, our need 
for purification. We Hopefully, through these stories, the prodigal and that real-life example, you see what God is trying to show us through things like disease and decay and death, how dirty our sins are and how unacceptable they make us before a holy God. So now we'll ask this question. How does Jesus perform his work of purification? There are too many to cover today. We'll draw attention to four. Four ways that Jesus makes purification for sin. Number one, Jesus makes purification for sins by taking on our filth. Jesus makes purification by taking on our filth. So we talked some this morning about the Old Covenant communicating how God cannot accept, He does not tolerate filth, dirtiness, especially of the moral category. So when Jesus comes, you'd think, oh, the, the chosen one of God couldn't participate or be near to filth. No. To make purification for sin once for all, He takes on our filth. Isaiah says it this way, Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. So there's the filth. There's the dirtiness before God. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the perfect one, the chosen one of God, is the one that God places all of that filth and decay and dirtiness of a moral category on him. He has become the detestable thing in our place. He has become the pigs. He has become the sty. He has become the dirt, the muck, and the mire in our place. He has become the curse. You can see it, as I've said before this morning, in the scene of the manger, right? It's, 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 it's pictured or prophesied there that he comes into a dirty circumstance and he takes it on and he deals with it. The second way, so, so Jesus cleans up the mess of our sins by taking our sins all on himself. Very often when you clean something, you get dirty too. But more than that, Jesus takes all of the mess and puts it on himself. Secondly, Jesus makes purification for sins by destroying the works of the devil. It's one of my favorite analogies of the work of Christ. This is in 1 John 3.8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of Man appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I got this from another preacher by the name of Ben Stewart, so I'll give credit where credit is due. But he said, the reason for the season is destruction, right? When you think about Christmas, you should think in your minds that the reason the Son of Man appeared was to destroy something, specifically the work of the enemy. And how Jesus makes purification for sin is by breaking that down forever. And that's the source, right? The, the, the enemy has been sinning from the beginning. This is the diabolical family that you belong to if you are not in Christ. 
Jesus says to the Pharisees, you're of your father, the devil. You're under his power if you're not in Christ. And what Jesus came to do was to break that bondage. He cleans up the mess of our sins by forever destroying the power of sin and liberating us from its control. He goes to the source of the problem in two ways. This is the first one. He goes to the source of the problem of our filth and our sin and our decay, and he breaks it. He destroys it in his own flesh. Third, Jesus makes purification for sins by living the perfect life in our place. I've already referenced this, but 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. Right? It, didn't, it doesn't say that the, the flavor of what Paul's getting at here is not that, that, that Jesus in some uh, you know, sterile accounting way took our sins on His account for ours, but that God made Him to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So you see, there's a great exchange, the way Lewis calls it. This is a great exchange. Christ takes our filth, and we talked about that in the first one. He takes on our filth on Himself, and then He gives us His righteousness through faith. So it's not just that we needed it an absence of our dirtiness that our sin brought on our account. We needed cleanliness. We need purity to be able to walk before the Lord. A holy life that even now, by the Spirit, you simply cannot live. I mean, most of us have already royally messed up the day on our way here, right? Anyone walk sinless into this room? You can't please God fully on your own. And you have the Spirit. You can't live the life He requires. But this is what, if, if you're familiar with John Bunyan, the guy who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, his conversion story is an amazing one. I won't quote the whole passage. But he said he came to understand and feel this idea. Your righteousness is in heaven. Your righteousness is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. When you think of what God requires of you, that He still requires of you, that you ought to be seeking to live and work every day in repentance and, and sanctification towards, your righteousness, though, is in heaven. When He looks at your life, when it comes that day, the day of judgment, when he will require a perfect life in order to let you into his kingdom, Jesus already lived it. And he has made it yours through faith. So Jesus cleaned up the mess of our sins by giving us the clean and perfect life that was his through faith in Him. Lastly, fourth, Jesus makes purification for sins by giving us new hearts. 
It's not that he takes our, it's not just that he takes our sin on himself. It's not just that he gives us his righteousness. It's that he changes us. He actually changes our hearts so that gradually and by his grace, we can begin to live holy lives before him. Not perfectly. The Bible does not teach sinless perfection. But that we will become more like him as we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. This is how Ezekiel, this is, this is a passage from Ezekiel I will read this morning. Ezekiel 36, 5 through 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. One that is sensitive to the Lord. And I will put my spirit, capital S, I will put my spirit within you and cause you, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So Jesus cleaned up the mess and filth of our sins by changing our hearts so that we make fewer messes, if you will. So so these two items that we have looked at in the last deal with the source. He's destroyed the works of the devil so that we are no longer under the power of sin and he changes our hearts so that we no longer want to be under the power of sin. We talked about this back in October That it is by grace and by His Spirit, it is the power of God at work within us, both to will and to do His good pleasure. And then the author says, after, after, so we've covered this statement. I, I hope you can see how significant this statement is. After making purification for sin. So after making purification for sin, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And the big takeaway from this verse is it's done. He doesn't sit down at the right hand unless the work of purification is done forever. You don't have to make purification for your own sins. You don't have to travel to a temple or a center of worship and lay animals on the altar and sacrifice. The altar is closed. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Jesus is it. The author of Hebrews says it this way in chapter 10, verse 14. For by a single offering... He has perfected, by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So in this verse, you see the both and that we really need in our lives. He's forever made you perfect through His sacrifice, but we're still being sanctified. So we have a both and and already not yet dynamic here that as we walk and progress into more holiness, and a life more and more pleasing to him, yet he has already perfected you for all time in Christ. And that is a powerful thing. 
when you think about how you celebrate Christmas, how often does this idea that he has once for all time perfected those who are in Christ, that before him you are perfect, in a real, tangible sense in Christ, you are perfect before the only person's opinion that matters. And then he says, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Whenever you open your Bible, you're dealing face to face with God, right? This is God's word. He's speaking directly to you as you read the words off of the page. But sometimes we read passages where we, I feel at least, that we're dealing with realities that are a little bit above and beyond our understanding, that the kind of hint at things going on that we haven't been fully told what they are. And this is one of them, how the angelic beings respond or interact with the story of Jesus. He sat down at the right hand of majesty, right? This is, an, this is a picture into the throne, very throne room of God. Having become as much superior to the angels. And it's not as if Jesus was ever inferior to the angels, Right? I mean, are are you paying attention? Are you seeing what he's saying here? Having become as much superior to the angels. We've got to deal with that. It's not as if Jesus was ever inferior. It's not that he had to become more superior. It's that now, because of his work of purification, because of what he's done in making purifications for sin, it is now clearly seen, clearly manifest, beyond dispute in the courts of heaven that Jesus is superior to all the angels. So I don't know if this is the case, but it could be that for a while, for the angelic beings, that this, this seat at the right hand of God could have been vacant because it indicates now that after making purifications for sins, he sat down, that somehow that throne was reserved for him after making these purification, this purification for sin. And I don't think it's stretching the analogy too far to think that Lucifer's fall in the first place might have been to think that that seat is for me. I will ascend to the Most High. And as yet now, when Jesus returns to his rightful place in heaven, in his human body, he walks and takes his seat at the right hand. Because he is the one who has made purification for sins. And I'll just read from Revelation, the Revelation to John chapter 5. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. But this is astounding. And this plays into exactly what we're talking about. The Revelation to John, chapter 5. I'll pick it up in verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and gold bowls full of incense, which were the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads, that's 10,000, 100,000 times 100,000, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. The ground or the reason that Jesus is the one that all of that praise and exaltation is directed to is his work of purifying us and creating in him a new kingdom, a new people for God. So just a few points of application or takeaway to the non-believer. I'm not naive enough to think that every person in this room is right before God. First, do you see the kindness and the meekness of our Lord Jesus Christ? That He didn't just sit up in heaven and say, do this, don't do this, and we'll work it out on Judgment Day, right? But He comes down. He takes on flesh. He takes on our filth. He takes on our sins. He destroys the work of the devil. And He offers His righteousness to you. This is not some moral cosmic policeman that's here to just ruin your fun. He is offering you life. He's offering you his his very life in your place. That to your credit, when you stand before God, all of Christ's righteousness is yours. So won't you come to him? So it's through faith that you can gain all this blessing. Through faith in Him. Just mere faith in Him that you receive all of these blessings. To the Christian, I want you to think about this. Ponder this. The most festive or Christmassy thing that you can do is to take part in His purifying work. Think about that. This Christmas may have, not, may have not gone the way you wanted it to. You may have not been invited to as many parties as you used to. You may have lost loved ones this year, and so it's especially painful. You may have not gotten up your Christmas tree with lights on it till yesterday. Your house might be a mess. You might feel very lonely. But if we're to have a time where we celebrate the first coming of our Lord, He appeared to destroy the works of the devil. The way you can be festive this year in a true Christian sense is to destroy something in your life that resembles the work of the devil. If there's a relationship that needs reconciling, if there is forgiveness that needs to be asked for, if there is a habit that has to be crushed, 
That's what makes this Christmas worthwhile. For you to participate and join in to His work of purification. It says it this way in the Psalms, a body you have prepared for me. That that little baby in the trough is going to be crushed and slaughtered to make purification for sins. So let's honor that sacrifice this Christmas. It doesn't matter how great it's been. If you've knocked it out of the park with parties and decorations and presents and everyone has felt so festive this time, if you are holding on to nooks and crannies of your heart or you haven't let his purifying work take effect, even if it means sacrificing or destroying things that you think are part of your personality, you might say, well, that, that's just who I am, or I'm, I'm this way, or people may think this about me, but that's just who I am. Joining in to Christ's work of purification might mean sacrificing even that, something that you think is part of you. But if it's displeasing to him, join in that purifying work. Join in that work of destruction that he does for your good. And to all of us, I would just say, just marvel at the Son of God. I've said this before, but sometimes after we read truth, when we're shown the truth about Jesus, and when we see his work, the most worshipful thing you can do is to just step back and ponder. To consider what he's done for you. And hopefully that is what this season means for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of our Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. We thank you that he has dealt with our filth. He has removed the stench of our sins and given us his righteousness. And I pray if there are those in this room who do not know you, who have not reached out to you in faith, that you would by your spirit convict them and give them the eyes of faith so that they may see the true, real, risen Christ and believe on him. And I ask that for each of us in this room who do know you, that we will identify areas of our life that must be destroyed to honor your work of purification in your first coming as we yearn for your return. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.